Welcome back to the Darkest Hour Podcast, the show that delivers a thorough but loving autopsy of the great horror film franchises and individual movies here and there from uh, the past and the present. And we are right smack dab in the midst of the present tonight, folks. It's a very special episode, the very first time we've ever done this. We are looking at a movie that is... uh, only available in theaters right now, and of course we are talking about the mega-hit Halloween, uh, which is kind of Halloween 2, if you think about it. And I'm joined, uh, I'm John Evans, of course, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Vikram Wheat, the screenwriter extraordinaire, and, uh, you know, it's always been just the two of us on this show. Um, and I'm looking forward to just talking movies with my buddy Vic again, because uh, it's just him and me, man, as it has been from the beginning. How are you tonight, Vic? You know, I'm fine, John. I, that, that just seemed like a, like a largely unnecessary sort of preamble to just, you know, it's like, oh, and like, it's, it's always just been the two of us. There's never been. Um, I do want to stress uh, uh, that, that it is Halloween is, is only available legally in theaters. Um, and I can only assume that our uh, uh, largely law-abiding li- listenership uh, would never download anything uh, illegally or, or acquire it otherwise. Um, yes. Well, but, uh, uh, that, that, that almost goes without saying, uh, just as it almost goes without saying that there's nothing different about this podcast whatsoever, uh, as I'm sure everyone who has been with us from the beginning has already noticed. And yes, in the great spirit of retconning Halloween films and pretending that um, certain things didn't happen and just picking and choosing, uh, we've been having fun with the f- the fact that uh, our third man here, uh, Mike Kuchek, who of course has been with us all the way uh, from the beginning when we started with uh, the Friday the 13th franchise, he is not here tonight. And sadly, um, I don't think he's ever going to come back. Um, the door remains open, of course, on our end. But uh, Mike has decided uh, that we part ways at this point. And obviously... We wish him well, and we really uh, hope that everyone listening checks out his horror film, Death Metal, when it becomes available, uh, that he wrote and directed. And uh, yeah, definitely check that out and support Mike if you've enjoyed his participation on this show um, in the past. So uh, moving on. I I do want to take just a second Mm -hmm. to address the fact, too, that uh, obviously it's been a long time since uh, we've we've been back. Uh, in the podcast world, and uh, I think I think we, we we both want to apologize for that. I think we were all really hoping that Mike was going to kind of wrap up this movie, and, and that we were all three going to be able to get back into this. That project seems like it got away from you know it got it it took on a life of its own, uh, and Mike really just wound up in a place where there just wasn't uh, he really didn't have time time for this. So. You and I, I just want to stress, we're 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 still going to try and get back on a regular schedule and get these podcasts out uh, in a fashion where people can can count on them and listen to them. And, and we, God knows, we really appreciate that. We are sorry for the long delay. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, maybe we're going to look at maybe doing some guest hosts uh, going forward. But with the with the current new in theater version of Halloween out there. Uh, we just we had to get together and do some talking about it and uh, uh, give you guys something something new to listen to. 
Yeah, absolutely. And thank you, Vic, for uh, stressing that. Yeah, we're, we have been gone a long time, even, you know, though we joke about being gone for a long time, a lot with the show. Uh, it was a, a very uh, unexpected and absurd amount of time that we've gone. But luckily, we did record one last show with Mike uh, that I will, um, I'll edit that and get that out there uh, before we, um, before we tackle our next uh, film, Just Vic and I, or whoever else we can find. So, Look forward to that. We do apologize to everyone who's who's been loyal to the show, and uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do a lot better as far as uh, giving you guys cool stuff to listen to in the yeah, future. You know, I like that. It's gonna be like Mike from Beyond the Grave. <laughs> yes, in cool. classic horror movie fashion. Exactly, rock and roll, <laughs> man. All right, <laughs> and like confusing sequel continuity. Uh, wait, I thought Mike was gone. Now Mike's back. What's going on? <laughs> yes. Uh, it's actually it's actually sort of fitting that Mike is the one who who uh, yes is fucking up our continuity here. Um, <laughs> I do. I, I want to say if anybody hasn't watched it, I watched the uh, they they did an honest trailer uh, for Halloween for the original Halloween, uh, which they sort of stressed like before you see the the new Halloween, which is actually the the sequel to Halloween, but not to Halloween two. But also not the Halloween two that Rob Zombie, the third Halloween <laughs> two. Yeah, it's it's a great it's a great honest trailer. But also, I think they they really put the the number to it. This is the third Halloween two. Yeah, which I believe is a distinction that only this film has. I mean, I'm sure there's maybe Hong Kong series or something that I'm not aware of, but. You know, in in American film, uh, I'm pretty sure this is the first third part two that we've seen. Uh, of course, with rebate, remakes and reboots, uh, I'm sure Transformers will own that title before too long, or Spider Man, perhaps. Uh, actually, anyway, um, let's start now. I want everyone to know if, for some reason, some of us listening uh, have not seen this film, we are going to do a uh, non-spoiler version and then we'll we'll start getting into spoilers so if somehow you haven't seen the film don't worry um we'll give you plenty of warning of when to hit pause and come back uh the next night after you rush to the theater <laughs> I'm, i make, i make no such promises and i may actually just shout out spoilers at random throughout the first half isn't it crazy that laurie just totally got hit by a truck at the end of the movie that was nuts i can't believe they went there actually revealed that Lori is a hermaphrodite. I didn't think they would go there. <laughs> oh my god, and the yogurt scene was so tasteless at the end. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Alright, so um, it it like let's preamble a little bit in saying that this movie is like enormously successful and in its first weekend it actually became the highest grossing film in the in the history of the franchise, which is kind of amazing. Uh, it, it had a $76.2 million debut in North America and actually grossed uh, a little bit more, uh, $90.5 million when you when you take some uh, international um, box office in its opening weekend. So yep. that's just, uh, that's what Variety likes to call a boffo box office. Jesus Christ, does Variety still do that? Do people still read Variety? Never mind. <laughs> I think I think we just dated ourselves. Uh, well, you know, Variety.com 
first off, whatever our thoughts about the film, and we'll get into that, uh, bravo there, and we're happy for that, and we're excited, and it's, uh, it's a very cool thing, and I'm glad that people are responding well to it, and that the reviews have been generally very positive. These are all good things. Yeah. And uh, I guess we might even say right out of the box that uh, a sequel is inevitable, which yay for us, because we'll get to do a show about that, too. Well, and I would say, too, I mean, it, it is with, and I, I could be wrong, but I feel like between this and maybe Happy Death Day, which was a little better than it had sort of any right to be, um, but there's they have a sequel to that coming out as well, like kind of a mini resurgence in slasher films that we, we really haven't seen a lot of here recently. Uh, mostly I feel like that had been sort of petering out with the end of the Saw franchise. Uh, I don't know, John, what do you, do you, do you agree with me in that? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a great point to make that, uh, certainly from our selfish perspective, this, the show has been largely about slasher movies and it's really cool that slasher movies are clearly definitively making a comeback. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit as we always do about the bigger picture uh, not that, you know, our role here is to talk about, uh, you know, the production history of a, any movie, let alone a new movie, but I do think it's interesting as we sort of, we've been discussing older films, how did this movie happen? How, why did it happen right now? Uh, just a little context that it was, uh, trotted around various concepts, one being, uh, something that would be called Halloween 3D, which would, I guess, would have been the third in the zombie timeline, the Rob Zombie timeline. And uh, basically nothing happened. Adam Wingard, a director I think that we both like, Vic, was, mm-hmm. was involved for a while with one iteration of the project, but it ended up changing hands and there was a rights issue and because uh, the uh, Weinstein Company uh, did not uh, produce it in time, to or Dimension Films, basically, Weinstein Company, did not make a movie in time and they lost the rights. Which uh, is, is a little bit of irony, I suppose, when you think about sort of the Me Too aspects that the film ended up taking on, that the, there was no Weinstein involved in the making of this film. <laughs> well, there is, I, I have to say, and I can't remember if I brought this up in the past, but I actually did, as a writer, have the opportunity to pitch a post-Rob Zombie Halloween reboot uh on the, it was a, it was a phone pitch i was not in person it was a phone pitch in theory bob weinstein was on the call he was he was on all the emails he was supposed to be on the call i didn't see him he didn't speak as far as i can tell so i don't know but it was him and and uh uh some people from um, michael bay's company uh, the platinum dunes uh were on the call as well they were they were also supposed to be sort of co-producers and stuff so I had this. I had a take on this. Now it was obviously not David Gordon Green um, and Danny McBride's version of it, um, but uh, uh, I had a I had a swing at this, guys. It was a swing and a miss, but uh, I still I I remember the only time I've ever said at the end of a pitch being like, "Listen, guys, like whether I get this or not, it's super fucking cool that I got to get on here and pitch a <laughs> Halloween." That's my that's my my tiny insignificant uh, uh, minuscule role in the, uh, the 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 one little thing I had somewhere between Rob Zombie and this. Now my old writing partner had pitched uh, 
something like a take for the yeah it was the house of wax remake way back in like 2003 or something and she would she swore when she saw the movie that they had used an element or two from from her pitch uh vic did you see anything in this movie that you're like they took that from my pitch not a you know what not a thing and i'll tell you because this was this was my take on it was i wanted to do a movie that took place essentially the day after Michael Myers had slaughtered a bunch of people. And so there would be one teenager who had not gone to the party or whatever, um, who was, who was sort of racked with survivor's guilt. Uh, and so throughout the story, there were sort of flashes back to this party where you would find out how all these teenagers died. And then you would sort of learn that Michael Myers, that the killer had not been caught and this person would start to see them in the present. And I, but I really liked, instead of just telling the standard story of, you know, a group of teenagers uh, being killed on prom night or whatever, um, starting that story at the end of it uh, and then picking up the pieces and, and, and figuring out how it all fit together in sort of a, a chronologically disjointed puzzle. Um, now wow. that's, that was obviously wow. not what they went with. It didn't occur to me to just bring back Laurie Strode and, and ignore, uh, everything after the first Halloween. So <laughs> conceptually, that's a good starting point because what, one of the things we've talked about leading up to this is that the fact that, that it, part two, when they made, uh, uh, Laurie Strode, Michael's sister, they painted themselves into a bit of a corner and that's how we wound up with. Michael constantly trying to kill members of his family. And so that became four and five became about Michael chasing his niece. And then, you know, H2O became about Michael still coming after his sister and yada, yada. Uh, and so it did seem like if you were going to take this in a new direction, eliminating that element was not the worst place to start. I'm not sure they, they paid off that potential entirely. Um, but it was, it, uh, well, spoiler. <laughs> yes, that's yeah, that's the spoiler. Sorry. Even from the get go, when I heard what they were doing, I sort of thought, well, that's the right idea. Even as somebody who had who had pitched his own idea, I said, that's the right idea. This is this is a good place to start. Yeah, they wanted to ground it more. They wanted to get out of that sort of uh, fanciful uh, realm that inevitably you get to after nine or 10 sequels. And yeah, absolutely. That, that was a, a good move. And to a, a degree, it, it pays off here. But I think that it actually leads me to one of my biggest issues with the film. And I think this is a, a non-spoiler um, topic. So I think we can start there because it, to me, it's one of sort of the two faceted burning issues of this film. And it also dovetails back with the sort of me Too tie in that Jamie Lee Curtis herself has said has inspired her in, in her performance and the way that she looks at this and perhaps part of why she was inspired to return. And I personally, I found this a little problematic and let me lay out my, my issue. This film essentially says that this young girl, 17 or 18 years old, who at like roughly 8.45, 9.45, 10.45, whatever time of night, she uh, had been having a relatively normal day in her life. She goes to a house and she finds her friends 
two or three of them uh, dead. That's that's very traumatic. And she goes toe-to-toe with a masked serial killer who uh, almost kills her a couple of times. The word traumatic comes up many times, even as I look at what this experience would represent for her. But she survives. The man is incarcerated. And the film asks us to believe that this ruined her life and that she had raised her child to such a degree, a survivalist degree, that she lost custody of her child, that she became an alcoholic, that she had failed marriages, no career, and more or less has spent every waking moment of the next 40 years obsessed with this guy in jail, hoping that he will get out of jail so that she can kill him. Now, that is not a healthy response to trauma. And there's a character in this film, a dopey stoner teenager, who says something kind of along the lines of what my thought process is, with the amount of mileage that they get out of this uh, horrible night, or hour and a half that she had in her life. Um, and it was this, you know, this seems almost, I'm not quoting him, but he, the, the gist of the point the kid's making is that seems quaint in 2018 that something like this, a guy killed four or five people, uh, 40 years ago. Like that's, that's kind of no big deal in this day and age. And yes, it's always going to be a big deal and it would absolutely change anyone's life. But I almost found it sad or depressing and even implausible that we're asked to believe that this character has become this crazed vigilante survivalist who you know, can't even have a normal relationship with her daughter or her granddaughter because of this hour and a half uh, scuffle she had with this guy who had, yes, killed her uh, to high school friends. Now, Vic, what's your immediate response to that, uh, that diatribe? If it's funny because I, 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 sometimes you launch into things and I'm like, shit, I hope I have something to say to that. (laughs) I have something to say to that. If this was an encounter with a, and this is such a, a strange turn of phrase, but let's just say a generic psychopath. Um, I would agree with you. If, on the other hand, Michael Myers is what uh, Loomis said he was, if he is, in fact, the boogeyman, if, in fact, the fact that that he survived those six gunshots and the fall off the balcony, you know, uh, uh, suggests that he, he somehow transcends mortal problems, mortal constraints, mortal uh, uh, lifespan, uh, that he is evil incarnate. If she really did confront the boogeyman, then it, then I sort of understand. Um, the problem is that that is so much of that is defined by that ending when he seems to disappear and become 
uh, a phantom when when it all of a sudden again much like Friday the 13th which we discussed where you introduce this seemingly supernatural element in the last 10 seconds that makes you go a holy shit that's the scariest thing I've ever seen um but then b you know paints everything that you've seen in this new light in that viewed through that lens I can see her becoming the person that she is at the beginning of this. The problem is that the movie never acknowledges that. They never talk about the fact that he was shot six times and fell on the balcony and got up. Like, we know that Will Patton's character is the one who subsequently sort of caught him. And, you know, but that's a circumstance that's never illuminated upon in any way. Um, and so it, I feel like you, if you wanted to make this character trajectory work, you needed to hit that harder. Uh, and that is, again, I, as, a, as a writer, the thing that the turn of phrase that I find most frustrating from network executives, God help you if you're listening to this, please write this down, grounded. Can we make it more grounded? Is there a more grounded version of this? Fuck you, okay? <laughs> this doesn't work because it's the grounded version. If people acknowledge that there is clearly something, even if it's indefinable, even if it doesn't have rules, even if it doesn't have definition, if there is something supernatural about Michael Myers, if he is the embodiment of evil and that is why he does not seem able to die, brace that. Because that makes the rest of this make sense. But they don't embrace it, and it's one of the weaknesses in the film. Ooh, I love it, Vic. Yeah, thank you. And we have not discussed our opinions about this film previously. I had no idea what you thought. You didn't know what I thought. So, um, unless I don't remember talking about it drunk the other night when we hung out. But, um... (laughs) In any event... I don't remember. We did talk about it a little bit, but it's fine. I think that... One of my big laments about this film would be, and and also I want to say, don't get me wrong, I've seen it twice. The first time I saw it in a packed house, the night that it came out, out, and I'd had a couple of beers, and I didn't know what was coming, and there are surprises, and it keeps you off balance. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I saw it last night, uh, sober. And alone in a mostly empty theater, though there were there were some women in the back that were absolutely getting played like a fiddle and and loving it, and I I love that. I want to be in an audience in a, in a theater like that, but sure. it um it really struck me as clumsy and dopey and a little ham handed, and I'm talking about from a writing perspective here. And I just really saw all the seams and the zippers that I didn't see the first time that I saw the movie. And this is one of those issues. Like, I, I know I walked out, like, unsatisfied the first time on, on several levels. And I think that you, you hit on the big one there. But, like, now I understand kind of exactly why. And, and yes, as you said, one of the main things is this movie tries to have its cake and eat it too. It really wants to be about the non-supernatural Michael Myers, where he's just a guy and it's grounded and all of that. And yet that does not work for very long. It doesn't work with the character motivations or their backstories 
And you needed to you needed to sell that what you just said, Vic. You needed to sell how there's something about this guy that differentiates him from what we think of as a a psycho with a knife who kills some people and traumatizes the survivors who deal with him. And the movie never quite commits to that enough to really toy with the audience and have us playing the game that the movie should be playing with us, which is, I don't know, is there something about this guy that's a little supernatural? There's that's beyond the, the pale that makes him scarier than a, a normal killer. I have a problem with just the very premise of the film being that this character that we are reintroduced to this plucky, bright, uh, warm woman was young woman was destroyed by this experience, destroyed by it. And it's absolutely ruined her life. And, you know, her poor daughter has been, you know, just had a, she was raised by foster parents who aren't even in the movie. Um, and, and then the, you know, the, the granddaughter, she's had some very vague and ambiguous lines. Again, it's a script problem, but you know, that implies she barely knows her grandmother, uh, Lori Strode. And there's just been like this massive amount of psychic damage from this. And yet I was never sold watching this movie on, what was so special about this guy and what was so lasting. Again, that's the problem. When you dial it down to the amount of time that this movie posits that they shared together, Michael and her, I not only don't buy why she has absolutely devoted every second of her waking life to this guy, as opposed to being like, you know what? The best fucking revenge is to have a good life, which I think is the healthiest response. This isn't saw. This isn't, she wasn't in captivity for eight months in the guy's dungeon. It just like, as traumatic experiences go, I I don't, I'm not saying I want to spend that hour and a half. I don't want to see my friends get, you know, fall out of a closet and, you know, see a dead body on a, on a, on a bed with a tombstone over it. I don't want that. But am I saying that, if that happened to me at 17, I would be her. I I don't know. I'm just largely it's they made a really big decision to commit to what this the 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 impact of this event on her and how it absolutely ruined her life. And then we're supposed to be happy that at what 58, 60 years old, uh, you know, maybe she scores some kind of win at the end. Well, and the hell of it is, and I, again, unfortunately, because of the, the way the timing of everything worked out, I think we had hoped as we, as we embarked on this podcast that we would be caught up in time to sort of do this, at least in sort of a timely fashion, if not right when it came out, sort of in the ballpark of it. Again, laugh at us for uh, <laughs> our ambitions when it comes to releasing podcasts. Um, but what, what struck me about this is that I found her her character sort of, you know, as an adult post-encounter with Michael Myers, much more believable in Halloween H2O. Mm-hmm. When, it, when it was her brother, then you go, 
oh, this is why you're popping pills and kind of an alcoholic. But even in that, she had, well, you know, where instead of instead of witnessing four deaths, she'd witnessed 20 because she'd been through the whole hospital experience and it had turned out to be her brother. Well, then she still had a, a mildly successful relationship with the, uh, the, somebody else at the school and, uh, you know, again, other stuff that we'll get into because we will eventually double back and cover Halloween H2O. Um, and it's and I want to be clear, too, because Jamie Lee Curtis is amazing in this. Now, she's an amazing actress in general, and it's something that she doesn't get enough credit for. Um I think she should have been Oscar nominated, frankly, for uh, Freaky Friday that she did. Um, she was she was fantastic in that. She did a movie called The Tailor of Panama with uh, Jeffrey Rush and Pierce Brosnan. That is a, a wildly underrated film. Never mind, you know, the stuff that she really did get recognition for, like uh, A Fish Called Wanda uh, and some other films. She's an amazingly talented actress, and so I, there's a part of there's a part of me that is just grateful to see an amazingly talented actress get a, a meaty role to play and sink her teeth into it and have it be financially successful. Look, it's good for Jamie Lee Curtis to have been in the most successful movie in this franchise 40 years after the first one came out. That's fucking amazing. Yeah. I um, just saw on the Wikipedia that like, uh, she's the oldest actress to be the lead in a film that grossed this much in raw dollars. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a really cool thing. That's incredible. And I mean, here's the other thing too, is look like, what do you see with actors, with all actors of any gender at this age? What is Harrison Ford doing? He's going back to Han Solo. He's going back to, uh, Indiana Jones. What is, you know, what is Michael Douglas doing? He, you know, he's going back to uh, uh, Wall Street. He's going back to Gordon Gecko. Like, what is Will Smith doing? He wants to do another uh, uh, Men in Black movie. Like, you know, you get to the point where Hollywood stops calling. You have to go back to your most famous part. If you're Sigourney Weaver, you know, okay, I'll do another Alien. Um, you sort of have to. You, you wind up going back to your most iconic role, and you just hope it doesn't suck. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so I will say for whatever else I'm going to say about this movie as we go forward, it doesn't suck. And she's great in it. And that in and of itself is uh, a story that's worth cheering. Yeah, one of my thoughts watching it again last night was, oh, she sold that line. Oh, she sold that line. Mm -hmm. Even as the other half of my brain is saying, that's a terrible line. Yeah. <laughs> But, yeah, she's great in this film. So, I mean, I, I guess we've beaten around the bush enough here. Let's let's kind of give our overall reviews, and then we'll sort of get into the the spoiler analysis of the film. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna preface this by saying that I we have just uh, we have just taken a pause that will be edited entirely out of this, so that I could open a new Belgium uh, uh, Belgian style triple. Um, which is delightful, but also very high in alcohol. So if this gets off the rails over the course of the next uh, 30 to 40 minutes, uh, I want everybody to know that is the cause of it. Well, um, one of these podcasts going off the rails? Never. Well, I, I feel like it's kind of our charm. Like it's kind of our thing is I like to announce this is what we're drinking so that people know once they get to the end of it, oh, that's why this is you know uh, devolved into gibberish. Uh, or, or God only knows whatever else we're talking about. So, 
Um, here's here here's to you guys. So I had a, a unique what what certainly feels at this point like a unique experience with this film, which is that I got to see it uh, in a movie theater by myself. Um, which was not such an unusual thing for me for many years. Uh, you know, I mean, it's look if you're a movie buff and, you know, by God, sometimes you want to see the orphanage and you can't talk any of your friends into going to see a subtitled Spanish horror film because they've never heard of Guillermo del Toro. Uh, and, uh, you know, who I know produced, but did not direct whatever. But, uh, you know, and so that was like, there are times when I went to see movies just in literally in theaters by myself. Because I wanted to see The Signal or, you know, whatever obscure horror film was playing in Pacoima. Vic, uh, I will have you know that I saw both of those movies in the theater. And I'm wondering where the hell you were. Unemployed, John. I was unemployed. And so I saw them at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday and, and actually stopped when I saw The Orphanage. I asked the person at the ticket counter when I realized there was no one else there what would happen if I didn't show up? Like, do they still run the movie? And they they said no. So it was well, literally run exclusively for me. Um, private screening. And, and well, and frankly, like, what a terrifying experience! I did. Some kid came in to check the fire extinguishers while I was in while I was watching the orphanage. It scared the shit out of me. Uh, <laughs> so this, at least, there were other people in the movie theater. I, I just, I mean, it's truly been 12 years since I've been in a movie theater by myself and especially to go see a grown-up movie and a horror film and one that I was as invested in emotionally and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So there is, there is a sense of satisfaction just around the whole process of seeing this. With all that said, I would have to describe my general reaction as kind of underwhelmed. I think that this is, and we've, we've, we've used the word trauma many times. That to me is this, this movie is about the, the echo effect of this one trauma 40 years ago across three generations of women in Jamie Lee Curtis, Judy Greer, and Andy Matichak, I think is who plays the, uh, the youngest, yeah. uh, daughter there, the youngest Strode. Um, and that this becomes sort of a, you know, the, the idea is that this is a, a healing, a coming together. I mean, almost, and I've, I've seen it, this described as sort of a, a slasher film for the Me Too era, um, which I'm not sure is exactly where they were coming from here. But I think there are there's certainly a lot of evidence you could use to point to for that as well. Um, and that part of it didn't work for me, which is hard. I mean, again, and so like, look, when I say I'm underwhelmed, what I'm saying is that the character arc of the protagonists did not connect for me it didn't make it it didn't it didn't work it didn't uh, uh follow logically and a lot of that is a little bit is, is from what we've talked about with when you ignore the rest of the films does that does the does the even the inciting incident sort of work as substantial enough trauma to justify the rest of this but also just the way the characters are drawn and the the moments that are supposed to be the the gut punch moments do they really connect with you they didn't connect with me um, that said, I'm also a horror fan. And so when I come to a movie like this, um, look, if the, you know, if, if I don't, uh, 
if, if that part doesn't connect with me, there are lots of other things that a horror film can do successfully that will get me on its side. And it does a lot of that. I actually really liked a lot of the stuff with the podcasters. No bullshit. I'm not just relating <laughs> podcasters. Uh, but um, uh, I really liked the, the way that a lot of that stuff played out. I thought that uh, uh, the, the particular scene with them that involves a gas station was uh, terribly effective. Um, and I really thought, and this seems, uh, it almost seems strange to say, but especially having seen all the films that we've seen, Having Nick Castle back in that part matters. Uh, even even with the age and everything, it actually works better because of it. But there are moments when he twists the knife in his hands, when he, you know, they do some self-conscious framing out of his face. That's one of those things that's a tough thing to play. I, I, you could you could do it differently. You could you could have done it the way they did it. I wouldn't have certainly wouldn't have shown any more. The only question would be, did they show too much? I, I I'm okay with it. I understand why they did it the way they did it. The important thing is it's a performance, and people. I think one of the things that people who don't appreciate horror films don't appreciate slasher films. Um, what they don't get is that Kane Hodder matters. Uh, you know, Nick Castle matters. Who you get to embody these people really makes a difference in terms of how frightening they are. Uh, and and it really made a difference. And that was one of the things that they did very well. And David Gordon Green is a good director. And so there are sequences that are very well directed. And there are moments when, you know, even character beats and stuff that, that you sort of go, oh, like, this is what happens if you get the guy who directed uh, uh, Pineapple Express, they they have an understanding of, of how to use the, the medium visually to bring about some of the, the character beats that they want and that sort of thing. So that stuff works. Like, it's, it's, it's an above-average slasher film by any measure, but it is not an above-average Halloween. Interesting that you say that just considering that what is average for a Halloween film? You know what I mean? Uh, I know. I I would put mm-hmm. this movie on par with Halloween Four. Okay, so yeah, you're saying it's an average Halloween sequel. Yes, okay. I found it. I found it less than H two O, and less than, frankly, and and thank God we don't have a strong social media presence because I don't want to deal with this. But I found it less than the first of the the Rob Zombie reboots. I would I would put it beneath. Uh, uh, both of those films and obviously the first one. Well, I mean, one of the things that we've realized, or at least I have over, and I think you to a degree have as well in, in watching these last couple of, you know, Halloween four, Halloween five is that we like them more than we thought, even, even though they might be kind of so bad as good in some ways. I, I think we both kind of reconnected with them, but generally these movies are not objectively good <laughs> they're they're a little um they're cheesy for for lack of a better term and and this is not a cheesy film so i i would you know kind of take the the opposite stance in that like i think that when you grade on a curve in the halloween franchise and i have not seen h2o in a long time so i'm looking forward to revisiting that but that's definitely not a gold standard in in my mind as far as my reaction to it uh, originally I would actually think that 
by the the kind of horror films that I respond to today, the movies that blow me away or even impress me, this isn't very high on on that you know spectrum on that scale. But um, considering sort of the quality of Halloween sequels, I think this one is uh, definitively like a a real high quality motion picture. So that, that puts it in sort of rare air by, by, you know, that measure, by the way, I, I do have to correct you. Unfortunately, Vic, when you talked about, uh, who's playing the shape in this, like, yep. and I, I don't know exactly where Nick Castle shows up in this movie. I know he does some breathing. I know he's in a shot or two, but for the most part, and I believe it's in some of the, the things that you referenced, uh, as far as the character's behavior, it, he's being played by an actor who we last saw in a Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, which was quite good and quite scary. And this guy was sort of the fulcrum of the show. He was this character called the Kindestad. Um, it's one of the scarier episodes of the series. Uh, Killed by Death is what it was called. Um, but James Jude Courtney actually, and I'm looking at a picture of the guy on the set of Halloween... Uh, this is just on his Wikipedia page, and he is clearly the old guy, the old actor who we get glimpses of playing yeah. Michael Myers in this film. Uh, he's got the makeup, the hairline, the beard, you know, the the damaged eye that we, uh, I guess, yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but he, he must have taken a, a an injury in his battle with Laurie uh, to do that damage, uh, perhaps, yeah, in the, in the closet the hanger you know or something like that um and and he has got a prosthetic effect on his eye but in any event like this guy uh who is also older yeah he was born in 1957 i believe he he does the lion's share of the performance uh in this film well thanks for that john (laughs) i I hope it feels good well you're talking about social media like i don't want like a flurry of correction uh, comments from our listeners. <laughs> oh, oh no, not a not a flurry of comments on our on our Facebook page. Well said. Like your overall review, um, I guess I will say sadly uh, is very much in line with, with with my feelings. I'm not overwhelmed with with respect for the impact of this film on me. However, I did feel impressed by uh, cinematography, directing choices, certain pieces of the teen dialogue, I thought, uh, sparkled. There's a lot of really clunker, expositional, just ineffectual dialogue that's desperately trying to reveal character or, or theme or explain behavior. And just does not do it. I'm a, a Danny McBride fan in every sense of the word. And, you know, maybe he did the comedic bits. And, you know, maybe he wrote every every word of the script. But regardless, whoever is responsible, there's just a lot of clunky dialogue in this film. And that's my cat feeder going off in the background, which is a tradition of the show. It, it, it never gets old, huh? Yeah, yeah, it never does. 
It actually it adds an element element of suspense to the podcast <laughs> because it's like we're waiting to know when the cat feeder is going to go off, and then it's the gun we, on the mantelpiece. The bomb is exactly the bomb is under the table, and <laughs> when's it going to go off? Who knows? <laughs> okay, so I don't think this is a spoiler, but um, Michael Myers is again being transported on Halloween uh, from one facility to another. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Of all things, like, like, let's say like, if you were going to give me 10, you can pick 10 things, John, as a writer or a producer or anyone involved in this film production executive that you do not want to see. And we will honor that list. That would have been number one for me. Yep. It's just so eye-rolling. Really? We're having Michael transferred from one facility to another again? Like, is that, like, when they're all like, well, we really want to do some fan service here. We want to make people happy. Like, what are the, what are the essential elements of a Halloween movie? Oh, well, he's got to be being transferred between, you know, one facility to another. When he gets out, like people love that shit. They're all like, "Oh man, I love it!" That he's like, he's in an armored car, or he's in a bus, and or you know, a paramedics van, and the dude breaks out. That's why I love Halloween. That's that's what makes this series great. Is that the dude escapes during a prisoner transfer? Brilliant. Well, and it and and it does. I mean, a it ignores once again the fact that. Fans of the series have seen that before, right? Like, we know that they continue trying to transport Michael Myers the day before Halloween for whatever reason. But it also sets up something that that I think is is kind of a, a, a something they fall back on periodically in this movie, which is they cut away from the violence and then cut back to the aftermath. So we never really get to see how Michael escapes. And it's something that they did to tremendous effect in Halloween 4, where we come, you know, we just have an ambulance on the ground and like blood painted everywhere. And the last thing we saw was a thumb absurdly going into somebody's forehead or whatever. Um, but it did create the sense of like, oh my God, this, you know, what a monster. Here we, you, they cut away from it. But we don't come back to anything so horrific that, again, it creates that sense of Michael Myers as something more than human or something, you know, a a supernatural force to be reckoned with. Instead, we just come back to an empty bus in a foggy night and people milling around, which feels self-consciously like a callback to the first film, which there are many of those uh, across the course of this. Again, like... If you're doing fan service, it's like, oh, you know what people want? They want to see dudes in hospital johnnies wandering yeah. on a foggy road. Like <laughs> that—that's what Halloween fans need yeah. to see. Well, and like I said, it's it's another one of those opportunities where if you're going to explain why uh, uh, Laurie Strode is so traumatized by her encounter with him, here's a chance, and you give us nothing. Like it's you know what I mean it's I it, it's such a a, a missed opportunity um, oh, to it's... lean into the lean into the violence lean into the evil of the character 
Uh, and instead we get something that, that feels very rote and sort of formulaic. That is also touching on one of the most annoying, bad writing aspects of this movie. And yeah, we're still not in spoiler territory because everyone knows that she, uh, that he escapes and she finds out about it at some point. And so she goes to her daughter and her husband to basically sound the alarm that, hey, listen, this guy that I've been obsessed with during that prisoner transfer got out, presumably. Um, that's why I'm worried. But because they need it to be the beat where her family shits on her paranoid delusions and says, oh, go away, you're just being crazy. The information that the TV news has readily available doesn't actually get communicated. And mm -hmm. instead, it just seems like she's showing up and freaking out and telling them what to do. And she has a gun and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But she could just be very rational if the movie wanted her to be, but of course yeah. they don't. And just said, hey, yeah, remember the guy that I'm afraid of? Um, he's loose, so maybe there's some precautions that we might take. But no, that would be the, the, the smart, rational, realistic way to play the scene. But not, it doesn't serve the way, you know, we want to slow play the uh, suspense of the film and have beats of Laurie being rebuffed for her craziness and just sort of ridiculous, cheesy Hollywood dramatic tropes. Exactly. They, they purposefully obscure the fact uh, in order to, to get to the dramatic beat that they sort of want to get to. Exactly. Uh, no, I, I agree a hundred percent. And it is, I'm going to, I'm going to say this. I, this is, this has been, you know, it's cause it's been, a couple of days since I've seen it, you talk to people about it. And the one thing that I keep coming back to, again, if this is a movie about a healing, you know, that builds to this healing moment uh, surrounding an initial trauma 40 years ago, the ripple effects of it as it stretches out across these three generations of women. And it builds to this moment that we will eventually get to in the third act. But this is the this is the, the these are the building blocks that should be leading to that. The problem is that Danny McBride and David Gordon Green are just not the people to write that story. They can write a good Michael Myers story, and they're okay with the teenage stuff. And there's other stuff that they're okay with, and there's other stuff that they're not okay with. But this part of the story. And I've heard this. I've heard this reference before that you needed Deborah Hill to take a pass at this. Mm. You needed, and and uh, I, I hope this isn't reductive, uh, or I, I hope that I'm not being insensitive. I would have had a woman take a pass at this. You needed a female screenwriter to look at the relationships between these women and to make sure that they that that the that, that it made sense. Because I don't think, and and I don't know how much of this is just the preconceptions that I'm bringing about Daddy McBride based on uh, sort of the, the the characters that he's played and everything else. Wait, and you didn't think Eastbound and Down was a devastatingly personal feminist portrayal of <laughs> what it's like to be a woman in, in the 21st century? <laughs> well, I did. I did not. 
But, but again, but the, I guess, but the point is, I don't want to confuse Danny McBride with the characters that he plays. Of course, right? yes. And so it's possible that Danny McBride may be an, an intensely soulful and, and emotional person who's capable of putting these things together. And Jason Blum was like, this is too emotional. Take it all out. I just want, let's, let's you know, cut to Who the chest. Give me the kiss, kiss, bang, bang. And so I don't want to say that Danny McBride, it doesn't work. Yeah. And it, and all I see in the credits are men. And I feel like if you're going to tell a story about women, maybe that would have helped, especially because there are some weird moments that I'm sure we'll get to that have some, uh, uh, some weird me too echoes to them. Um, well, there's just so much dialogue that is, it's just, you know, that's my childhood and that's mm-hmm. just supposed to speak volumes. And when, when the daughter is referring to what her grandmother, Lori, I mean, what her mother, um, Lori Strode put her through as a survivalist child. And it, it's just very, just lands with a thud. It's just, yeah. you know, it's so... They just are beating this drum in this clumsy, broad, obvious way. And, yeah, yeah I think that there there is not any <laughs> Rebecca Holof Center scene in, in this film. You know, like, there's, there are many, um, there are many voices that could have been valuable in, in finding more authenticity in what mean- it would have been like. Shut up! Sorry, I'm gonna interrupt. Mm-hmm. You mean Nicole, Nicole Hollison? Did I say Rebecca? Yes, Nicole oh. Hollisoner. Yes, okay. yes. Thank you, Vic. Okay. Thank you. I'm gonna leave that in because. Uh, All right, that's yeah. good. All right, good. Yeah, that's authentic. Uh, I I know her game, not her name. <laughs> God, cut that, John. Please. Cut <laughs> anyway, um, let's cut to the chase. Uh, let's do our final uh, non-spoiler uh, segment here. Yep. And sum it all up, you know, from a casting perspective, I did want to note that the guy that plays Ray, the uh, husband of um, the daughter, uh, who is Karen, uh, who is played by uh, the inimitable Judy Greer, who I have to say, this is, if you had been excited when you saw that Judy Greer was in this movie uh, I, I don't think you'd walk away all that satisfied. And, and to that point also, uh, Will Patton, you know, like, wow, cool. I think you're a fan, uh, Vic, correct me if I'm wrong, of both Judy Greer and Will Patton. Did you walk out of this movie being like, yeah, those, that was, they really got great stuff out of those two fine actors. I, there were, there were beats out of Patton that I, that I, that I really liked. Um, I, in particular, uh, this is a super nerdy thing to say. I have an enormously long commute. I've been listening to the Stephen King, uh, Mr. Mercedes books and, uh, oh gosh, his, his uh, most recent one, the, the title escapes me, but Will Patton has been reading them. And so his voice is like reverberating. I've got, I've got, I've got 60 hours of Will Patton's <laughs> voice reverberating around in my head. So I was really excited to see him, and I thought he had a great character that they just didn't do much with. Uh, so that was that just felt like sort of a sort of a missed uh, a missed opportunity. I think they treated him better than Judy Greer. I will say that. That's true. Well, Judy, well, because Judy Greer had so much more potential and so much less to do. 
Exactly. Uh, uh, I like the Christmas sweater. Like she wants to skip over Halloween, so she's wearing a Christmas sweater. There's there's a couple little things. She has a line yeah. or two, but uh, generally it's sort of a thankless role, in my yeah. opinion. No, it's such a wonderful opportunity. I mean, it, it I it just kills me that you're going to get. You know, I mean, even and again, I the the Andy uh, Matichak was was fine as her daughter, but like the chance to get Jamie Lee Curtis and Judy Greer and you know Haley Steinfeld or something like you could have had these three generations of amazing character actresses who have never been properly recognized or gotten the box office that they deserved or whatever. Um, and it just feels like they, you know, and, and could have had real roles and, and it just feels like such a missed opportunity on so many levels for all, for all those people. And again, it made a lot of money. And so I'm super happy for Jamie Lee Curtis and I'm super happy for Judy Greer. Um, but it's not the part that she deserved. And there was, there was much more to be done there. But again, when you miss the, the core piece of, what is the trauma that Jamie Lee Curtis, that Laurie Strode suffers and what are the ripple effects of that trauma? And when you don't just formulate that equation correctly, well, then Judy Greer, as the result of those ripple effects, doesn't feel correct or honest or thought through. Um, and so it's not it's not her fault. She does a, a wonderful job with what she's given. Um but it's just conceptually they were they're they're they have a good idea, but they 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 don't follow through. It's very ordinary, is what it yeah. is. Yeah, it's very you know superficial. It's very it's very lifetime. Yep. Movie. Exactly. Uh, and and yeah, it should have been more than that. Exactly. Yeah. And they yeah. should have my idea, John. They should have done what I fucking. <laughs> That's the problem. Sorry, it's fine. It's cool. No, it's cool. Sorry. It's fine. Yeah. You know what? Maybe for Halloween 4, they'll, <laughs> they'll do what you want. <laughs> and that'll be the, the fourth Halloween 4. <laughs> yes. Exactly. The fourth Halloween 4. <laughs> exactly. Because, <laughs> yeah, that'll be in the next reboot. <laughs> that the won't third, even be in this third, one. The third Halloween 1. Yes. That's, that's what I'm really shooting for. Yeah. That's that'll be in 2026. One last thing. We should talk about just our interpretation of Michael in this film because that, that feels like a general thing before we get into any more specifics or you know uh, throw off the spoiler tag. Uh, yep. What did you think of Michael's performance? Uh, let's not even worry about who was playing him and what shot or how it worked. Yeah. Like, what do you think of this Michael? I it's it's To me, it's the strongest Michael certainly since – the first one Ooh. it's the strongest Michael since the first one is my gut reaction that's a big I statement need to, I need to rewatch the uh, again the, I, I think the first Rob Zombie just because physically and I forget I know he used a wrestler in the part uh, physically that character is so dominant I, I sort of feel like I, I want to watch that again before I would I would necessarily say that. But my gut reaction is this is the best performance I've seen in the in the in the character since the first one, including the mask and the costume. Mm-hmm. It all works. Everything. Everything works. Yeah, I definitely think it's very good. I have no issues. I wouldn't uh, 
you know, I wouldn't say it didn't feel right or there's nothing negative I would say. By the way, Tyler Maine is the guy who played That's him. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do like that without making him uh, slight or ordinary, they did ground him a little bit more. He does not look like a pro wrestler in this film. He's not a giant. He's not like... And I, I just... I... I just want to say, if you say ground again, I'm going to, I'm going to choke you. Well, that's, kind of... I mean, I, I think I'm somewhat saying it because, you know, with tongue in cheek, but go ahead, man. Uh, no, 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 no. For spite. No, it's great. It's great. No, be spiteful. I feel like that's a good way to start this off without Mike is we should just start kicking each other in the balls. It's good. Yeah. Well, I mean, via Skype, I think there's a lot of damage we can do to each other. Uh, we probably <laughs> go there. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the podcast? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think the physicality that he brings to the screen, you know, both unmasked. I think I would give him even more points unmasked. Uh, I think he's solid masked. I think he definitely has some cool shots. There's one shot where he's reflected in a window uh, as he's gazing into someone's house. That there's a tremendous amount of energy. There's pop too. That it, it just it it's it's very uh, striking and it creates uh, it, the mystique that we're looking for with this this character. Um, you know, and and as you watch him move around, I think it's all very carefully chosen and blocked and acted. And he's he's definitely there's not a single frame of Michael Myers in this film that feels like, you know, oh, we're just watching a stuntman, you know, stand on a road the way I think, uh, and a couple of, you know, in four or five, there's, there's a couple of sort of awkward shots of Michael, uh, you know, per film that, um, don't have a lot of gravitas to them. So yeah, I, I think I love the way they handle him in general. He uh, he does a couple of the, the sort of head um, tilt things, and uh-huh. I felt that was a little pandering-ish because it wasn't like what he was tilting his head to was particularly worthy. So, it, it again, back to the idea of fan service or pandering or whatever, it just kind of was like, okay, so we got to slip in another uh, head tilt for Michael because, you know, people love to see Michael tilt his head. Um, and, as opposed to expanding on the character, which right. there was actually room for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're definitely what would get me excited personally as a fan of this series would be where you have that kind of oh god, I'm going to use a really pretentious word for song between <laughs> between the old and the new, mm. where you're like. Oh, ooh, we're pushing this character a little bit. This is sort of a new take, and yet it feels so right. That is what I would have been excited by. I would have felt like this interpretation is bold, and we're removing the ball, and we're advancing this character, and we're giving you more to think about. But yet, yet at the same time, it feels completely. Uh, coherent with this sort of overall mythology or the uh, admittedly or the agreed upon coolness of this character. And instead it's just sort of wink and a nod and, Hey, we're going to give you the sort of greatest hits 
that this guy does. Um, yeah. you know, that he, he's been, you know, providing, he's like Elvis. Uh, all right. You know, give us another, uh, uh, blue suede shoes performance, please. Cause that's play the hits, you know, this, that's I, exactly. This movie feels like someone did a, a, a careful analysis of what worked in the first Halloween movie and nobody thought about why it worked in the first Halloween movie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's so we got okay. These are the beats they you can know, see the the goddamn dry erase board with everybody writing down the beats that worked in the first one and then figuring out ways to incorporate them into it, and nobody thinking about well, why did it work when Michael Myers turned his head that because we were getting some brief obscure insight for one second into who he was. And again, the same thing, which we've argued about on this podcast, when he has the sheet over his head, why does that, even if it didn't work for me, we talked about it. It was such a, 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 a discussion amongst us that there was something to it. And it literally is. They were like, they took the image of that, and none of the discussion that we had, none of why it was interesting, what the what the those sort of pieces were. Exactly. It's it's falling apart, John. The more we talk about it, the more this movie's falling apart. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Again, like I I walked out of it the first time. If we had done the podcast right after that, you know, I would have said, Oh, like I like the camera work and there's like a lot of cool shots and kept me off balance and you know the kills and the aftermath of the kills are are striking and it's visceral and it feels like it doesn't pull any punches and the acting is good and you know i i would have and i still believe all of those things all of, all of those things are true absolutely yeah yeah but then when i watched it again i just felt like that's all there is they yep. they got all of those things right but, you know, this is not a movie that I want to watch a third time. It's not a movie that I'm going to think about later. It's not a movie that I feel lays actually promising groundwork for another a sequel. I, I just, I don't even know. I'm glad it's not my job, other than the fact that it'd be awesome, um, to come up with a sequel for this movie. I think they're actually kind of screwed in the sense that, like, they don't, there's nothing really intriguing and new that they can build upon. No, they just have, they just, well, wait, hard to get into without spoilers. Well, that's a good segue then, Vic. Let's, All right. let, us, let us segue then, John. So if anyone listening has not seen this film, uh, this is where you should double back later, uh, because... Henceforth, we're going to be uncensored and uh, no holds barred, and we're going to go all the way to the end of this film in terms of what we cover. So, spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. All right, uh, the gloves are off, Vic. Let's uh, let's let it fly. Let's talk about this film in its uh, the nitty gritty. Even though I don't think we're going to get as granular, like scene by scene, as we. Often. Yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think yeah. we have to do that. And no. Frank, I've only seen this. I know you've seen it twice. I was only able to see it once, which was in itself a minor miracle. So, right, right. I don't know. I'm I'm excited about that. But 
here's what I have to say. I the the I like this is that like the coiled spring that I've been sitting on waiting for you to take the gloves off. The 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 Doctor Sartain mm-hmm. character uh, uh, played by Hal Haluk Billing Billinger. Oh Jesus Christ! I'm gonna fuck it up. I don't care. <laughs> it, every decision, literally every decision they made with him was wrong. From the actor they cast to the accent that he has, to the backstory that they gave him, to literally every choice that he makes in the movie. If he had just died in the bus, there's a thousand things they could have done that would have been better than what they did. It's a disaster. His character is a disaster. I I shudder to think of what uh, uh, poor Donald Pleasance would think if he saw what they did with the archetype that he created, it's a it's a it's a travesty. Well, I'm only going to play devil's advocate here because, for the most part, my John, visceral... I I just want to be clear. I will kill you. <laughs> I am really glad we're not in the same room right now, Dick. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I am largely spiritually and creatively on the same page as you. But I will say that I get the motivation in the sense that they're like, we can't just have, oh, you're the new Loomis, and him be the new Loomis. Like, that is a very tired, retrograde, kind of uninspired thing. Like, there's, we have to admit, there's something clever, quote-unquote, about the Loomis of this movie being in the cult of Michael. I I think it could have worked. They don't need him. The only reason he's in the cult of Michael is because they needed some reason to get Michael to uh, Lori's house. That's it. He's now that could have... Like, I've heard that argument, but there's so many ways he could have found his way to the house without, like, contriving no, there, that No, there aren't. No, there aren't. There's no other way Michael could have gone from the high school dance to Lori's house. Well, wait, yeah, draw the line for us. Like, well, I, think, you know, I tried I, to watch I, it again. If Here's the deal. Here's what I could have done it if Lori was Michael's sister. That's how they could have done it. And instead they opted for this absurd thing when he kills Will Patton, which is a betrayal of everything you've built up with his character. Um, you know, he puts Michael into the car like he's just ignoring no, everything wait. that he knows about Michael when he does it. It's, a, it, it, it's, it's just incompetent. It's just dumb. Yes, yes. I totally agree as far as, like, whatever the doctor's plan was is beyond ridiculous. And... Even if you just, like, yeah, to tangent briefly, if you assume that Michael left him alive on the bus for some reason, like, either he contributed to his, uh, the doctor contributed to Michael's escape, or was, which I think is the assumption we're supposed to have, um, or just was inoffensive enough that Michael didn't kill him, then Michael's reaction to him later is uh, to summarily kill him. Just invalidates whatever pseudo-relationship the characters may have been implied to have. Well, so, I'm going to 
fits. I'm going to back a step further. It was stupid for him to be on the bus. For himself, you're doing a or just... major. If you're doing a major, like a like a transfer of the the most dangerous prisoners out of a out of a a, a, a hospital for the criminally insane, and the doctor just is like, he's still my patient. Like, no, you don't get to get on the fucking bus. They have a list of people who can get on the bus. If you're not on the list, you don't get on. Like that's again, it was that was everything about his character is contrived to get him to a place where he can drive Michael and the the granddaughter to Lori's house. Okay, so here's what I'm going to say about that, and I'm glad you brought it back to that. We've already established that when Michael just randomly, completely randomly, wanders around this this town, he happens to intersect with the friends group, meaning uh-huh. the blonde girl and her boyfriend of... Um, of the granddaughter. Yep. And he organically crosses paths with the nerdy guy and thereby the granddaughter um, on this evening. So they are in the same, within the proximity that we don't need a guy, a police car to pick up the, the granddaughter and, and hit Michael with a car, like, however we're going to get the girl home, because they're just taking a shortcut, allegedly. She's on her way home, right? Um, Michael could have simply followed her from where he kills the uh, the friend. So we, I don't think we actually need, unless we're talking about, well, you know, uh, Lori's house is X number of miles, and how would... Uh, I mean, we got rid of her phone, by the way, in a tremendously cheesy fashion. Yep. Yeah, with the boyfriend throwing her phone into a, you know, vat of Jello or whatever the fuck it is. Um, you know, which does not make sense. But like, I'm just saying, as a screenwriter, if you're like Michael and um, Allison, the granddaughter, are within a hundred yards of each other. How on earth are we going to get Michael and Allison back to Lori's house? I just, I don't think that's an impassable um, mountain. I mean, I think we could have climbed that mountain <laughs> somehow. I, I mean, I'm inclined to agree with you. But again, it, I, it, it, it builds on, I mean, so look, like it's part of, so, so this is one layer of the, the sort of bullshit plan that they're working off of. Um, and again, it's, it's right there with the, the throwing the phone in the pudding or whatever the fuck it was, which is, again, it's just lazy. Like it's such lazy writing. Like it's look like, I don't want to, I don't want to stereotype Danny McBride, but like, God damn it. Like every character you play is like, abhorrently lazy and that's kind of what makes them funny and then you do something like this and it's like you need to isolate a teenage girl in a suburban community so you have this Mm -hmm. incredibly contrived thing where she sees her boyfriend maybe making out with somebody else i'm gonna disagree with you real quick here i just want to say i'm not i don't think eastbound and down is eastbound and down is characterized by dopey lazy writing 
I think yeah. actually, like, it makes, you know, it's it's sharp. So let's not even blame him. I mean, I don't, there's another guy, Jeff Fradley. I mean, maybe he's brilliant and, and Dave, Dave, you know, David Gordon Green and Danny McBride totally pulled him down. But look, I don't know who to point the finger on here, but this is a dopey script, as I said at the outset. And I think we're on the same page there. And I think how it happened, we don't know. I'm sorry. It's not, it's not that I would not say, and I should, I should be clear. It's not that Eastbound and Down is dopey and lazy. It's the characters that McBride plays tend to be dopey and lazy. Sure, sure, sure. So I don't think we would argue with that. I'm not sure what that means, though, because when you depict a dopey and lazy character in a really sharp and insightful and well-plotted and well-written show, um, you know, that doesn't explain this movie <laughs> to me at all. <laughs> Is this, Doc, is this is this how it's going to be without Mike? Is it just going to be you and me kicking each other in the balls? Isn't because... that what we were doing that already? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I know. And you were always my antagonist. You were you were my the Michael Myers to my Doctor Loomis, and I understand. Um, but, okay. By the way, what did okay. you think of Loomis in this film? Like his brief um, brief appearance in this film as a. Like, the idea of this film is that he stopped being his doctor in 1978 and said we should kill him, and then he just disappeared, I guess, at that point. Um, I, it didn't, honestly, it didn't register. register. Yeah. 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 So, the this character that we hate, this uh, new Dr. Loomis, apparently he has been uh, Michael's doctor since then. He was a protege of Dr. Loomis. And his extremely half-baked motivation is that he wants to know what it feels like to be Michael. And his his true motivation, as I uh, uh, interpret it, is that he wants Michael to speak to him. Which I think is kind of interesting in the sense that he tells the podcasters that Michael can speak, but he does not choose to. And yet it appears that this doctor has never heard Michael actually talk to him. Well, but there's something, I mean, again, there's even there, there's something like, you're going to tell me that Michael, again, Michael, not only in, in our experience of, in our experience of him, not only does he not speak, but he doesn't emote. You know what I mean? He's a statue. He's a human statue. And so the idea that he has somehow driven this person insane uh, over the yeah. course of 40, you know, 40 years or however long it's been, like, it's kind of silly. Like, it is. He's given this doctor nothing, correct? He doesn't talk, and somehow he's made you want to know what it's like to murder? Like... He didn't do that. You just wanted to know what it was like to murder. Yeah, I mean, like, if you compared this guy to um, the the killers that we see in that wonderful Netflix show, Mindhunter, you know, uh-huh. where you have these raconteur killers who are, you know, fascinating and lure you in and kind of, like, are, gen- you know, genuinely charismatic figures on some level, or at least storytellers even as, you know, however repugnant you know that they are, like, Michael would be the least fascinating of your run-of-the-mill actual murderers that you might deal with as a 
um, therapist or as someone that, you know, whose job is to interview and study these guys. Like Michael literally is inert and he just sits there and stares at the wall and doesn't talk. So how on earth you would be obsessed with him, I have no idea. Well, and it's, I mean, that's exactly what I'm talking about too. It's, it's you know, when you tell me that Hannibal Lecter talked multiple migs into uh, swallowing yeah, yeah. his own tongue, I get it. I yeah, don't know what he yeah. said, but I believe it. But when you tell me that, you know, this, this fucking monolithic slab of human convinced a, uh, a German uh, uh, psychiatrist with absurd facial hair to uh, <laughs> murder a police officer on Halloween night. I don't believe that for a second. It's a, it's absurd. And that's what I mean. It's, it's, it's a plot contrivance. It's not a character. Everything they did with him is just a plot contrivance. He never should have been on the bus. That's absurd. He never should have survived getting shot in the chest. That's absurd. The police never would have driven around with him. He never would have, you know, I mean, then they were driving around with him and he just happens to have been carrying with him this crazy pen that becomes a knife. I mean, it's, it's everything he does is dumb, including how he shaves. Like, (laughs) okay. I do want to note that the little kid who shoots him, it's like a pea shooter. It's like a 22, you know, it's like to kill rabbits. Uh, I mean, not that I would ever endorse shooting a rabbit under any circumstances. Yeah. I want to, as a person who... John, John has rabbit. rabbits, guys. It's okay. John has rabbits. We can yeah. say it. Yeah, I do but, I do live with a rabbit once about five feet away from did, me right now. I, I John, I, I, I feel I should tell you I, I did have a, a, a kind of rabbit stew when I was in Belgium. You know, you shouldn't confess these things to me. I mean, at least, you know what, Vic? Better me than my wife. And better, better you yeah. hear it from me than later on when when we're famous and a reporter comes out and wants to be sure that the world. Oh my knows. God! Kim just literally hit me on the shoulder, and she's not happy. I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry, Kim. I'm not. I'm not proud of it. She's shaking her head in disapproval. You're right. <laughs> You're right, you're right to disapprove of me. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, um, no, it's a squirrel gun is what this kid has. So, yeah. of course, it doesn't kill this guy who he shoots in the shoulder with it. I like squirrels, too. And Kim wants to put in that she likes squirrels, too. So she's actually, I'm not, I'm digging myself deeper, really. But <laughs> oh, wait, I just want to clarify, Kim, you, you are a welcome guest in the podcast. We want you on. Um, um, pretty we're gonna find we're gonna find a movie. We're gonna make it happen. Vic is telling you because um, my headphones don't allow you to speak to her directly. That she would he would love for you to join us for uh, to talk about a movie at some point. Hocus Pocus, perhaps, or something that uh, that you can weigh in on. We can rant about your favorite movie and how it's not romantic. Oh yeah, she actually she she would um, as you can hear she would talk about. Um, it follows. Uh, Ooh, there you go. Yeah. So, what about what about the descent? Has she seen that yet? Oh no, I don't think she's seen the descent. I would love right. to make her watch the descent. That could, that could be a night, dude. We could you guys could come over. We could sit on the back porch and watch the descent. I'm on board for that. Let's do it. We Done. It's a feminist film. We can talk about Nana Roxbury. <laughs> she says, "Oh, you could hurt that." It's so weird. Like you can hear her, but uh, not not vice versa. 
So yep. the, the night at the Roxbury podcast, everybody, let's let's put that together. Let's do that. I will be nice to Ellie. <laughs> what is love? Don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. Yep. yep. No uh, more. Let's cut. Let's cut all that. No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Wait. No, I'm sorry. I should be clear. Anytime I sing, it's got to be kind. That's, that's... So, uh, Vic, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the podcasters on in this film. Um, the best part, they're the best part of the movie. The scene <laughs> in the bathroom with the with the, I mean, the teeth, the mm-hmm. the death scenes when they, when they cut to the guy whose jaw is is weirdly mm-hmm. broken over the counter. Um, the guy who gets his the the shit beat out of him. It's a it's a fantastic scene from top to bottom. It is. It is. And frankly, reminiscent of if I believe we haven't gotten there yet, but the opening scene of Halloween six 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 takes place in the restroom of a like rest area where Michael Myers comes in and there's crawling under the seat under the uh, walls and, and and that sort of thing. Well, um, I I don't I haven't seen that, but I I have seen the. Never- no, no, I haven't. Oh my! You're, All right. Somehow you're you're you've got a little bit of an edge on me in your Halloween uh, lore, actually, there, Vic. But I do remember a character played by Ken Faree of Dawn of the Dead uh, fame, who uh-huh. Michael kills in Halloween one or two, um, and uh, his name is something like uh, Big Joe Grizzly. Yes, in a mm-hmm. men's room. And I thought it was a pretty effective sequence because it's like an alpha male kind of a dude who thinks he's going to kick anyone's ass and someone's giving, you know, him shit or acting weird in a men's room. And he's, he's, he thinks he's just gonna, you know, beat this guy down. And he, you know, he has a very different experience than he expected. Are you sure this isn't Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber? Um, well, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I see I, I see I caught you off guard there. You were ready for that. That's yeah. okay. That's all right. <laughs> that is an immortal sequence. Uh, yes. As, as I recall. Yeah. <laughs> um, by the way, uh, looking at the character list for uh, the 2007 remake, which honestly I do look forward to as you do, Vic, um, re- revisiting, because I, I think it's pretty damn good it, it really sort of i have to say it impressed me much more than this film did like when i watched the halloween the rob zombie 2007 not the second one but the first one i was like damn that that sort of messed me up and that affected me and it it it, it was a more striking film than this one daniel harris is in that one well that doesn't hurt but right it's a, it, what I would say is you would look at that and say, wow, that's a Rob Zombie movie. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? He brought he brought a vision and he did his own thing with this. And I feel like here, much like the first Halloween 2, not to be confused with the second Halloween 2, they're trying to continue some things from the first. It's confounding. I mean, it's it's the idea to do it the way they did it but to stylistically change it up so much, but to bring the cast back. I mean, it's, it, is this a sequel to the first one or is it a modernization of it? 
um, because it, it almost just needs to either be its own thing or are you just going to do Halloween 2? When you look at one of the things that I noticed in this is if you look at the scenes, the Michael Myers scenes in particular, some of the most effective scenes when Michael Myers you know, walks into the house and, and kills the woman and takes the knife or when he goes into the, into the house after the, you know, the woman sort of looks out and before she closes the blinds, Michael grabs her and stabs her through the throat. Those are these wonderful lyrical scenes, these long takes that are very reminiscent of the first film. They're juxtaposed with the dance scenes and these other scenes that are sort of quick cutting and that feel like David Gordon Green doing his, millennial David Gordon Green thing um, where it's like it's it's sort of half homage to the first one and half like it's 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 okay it's cool we're gonna do something new and funky with this um, and I just feel like you needed to commit to one or the other and if you were gonna if you were gonna do the first then you needed to really embrace the supernatural aspect of it. If you were going to do the second, then you were really just doing Rob Zombie's version of it, but you needed to embrace that too. This movie doesn't know really what it wants to be. I think that's kind of what you're saying, and that's sort of my it's, feel. It's almost like it's, it's like it's half male and half female, but doesn't know how to identify. Yeah, it doesn't have a strong... Strong vision. That was a that was a that was a Jamie Lee Curtis hermaphrodite reference. I'm sorry. Oh. Not, obviously, oh come on, that was. Uh, you know, Vic. It's always <laughs> the lowest common denominator joke. You, no, just... you know what I bring to the table, okay? <laughs> just go get Mike back if you don't like it. <laughs> So, you know, I love that you brought up that little segment because my main, I want to say that that was my favorite part of the movie somehow was when we're just following Michael around killing people for, Mm -hmm. you know, about five, six minutes. I agree. He sort of immediately picks up a hammer and goes into a kitchen and bludgeons a woman and then picks up a knife and moves on to the next house. And I love the way it's shot. I love that, by the way, it's not like, uh, strictly POV, it's kind of more over the shoulder, but it's, it is following him. It is with him. It's very dynamic. Uh, we're very uh, connected to his perspective as he moves around this neighborhood, and uh, we see we see where where he's going as opposed to wondering where he is. And the movie also is effective in the moments where we don't know where he is, and we're not tied to his perspective in any way. But I. You know, this might be a minor thing, but I kind of, and I think it just sort of speaks volumes about the larger perspective or lack of perspective of the movie, that we we have a housewife with curlers in her hair in, in the kitchen. And I'm like, on some level, I'm like, yeah, this reminds me of watching a 1982 slasher movie, probably a Friday the 13th, um, where there's a woman with curlers in her hair and she's wearing a muumuu and she's in her kitchen and I'm on some level I'm like you know this is not the place for nostalgia what would be interesting about a Halloween movie in 2018 is having him kill somebody who's you know playing a, a game on her iPad or you know doing something inextricably modern like yeah. why do we want to watch another 
woman in curlers. I'm, I'm sure women still put, put curlers in their hair. I don't doubt that that, not that I have any firsthand knowledge of this, but I, you know, I'm not saying that that's impossible, but it just felt cinematically like this sort of tired, hey, look, it, it could be for a moment like we're watching an old 80s slasher movie. And that's not what I wanted. I wanted like to bring, to put, if you're going to put an old Michael Myers in 2018, like put him in 2018, like smack us in the face with our, the 2018-ness of this. And instead yeah. it feels like a fucking, you know, it could have been shot in 1984 sort of a scene. Yeah. And that's depressing on, on some level. Yeah. Overall uninspired is kind of the, the takeaway, I think. I mean, I think here's, I mean, here's what I'll say. Look, there, there are some scenes that I think really worked and it's, and that's sort of what I want to make sure that we, that we come away from this going, look, I don't want to shit on this movie. Like I said, it's, it's a noble attempt. Uh, and, and again, you had smart people and that's again, where I don't want to talk shit about Danny McBride and, and David Gordon Green. You had smart people who clearly love this franchise and wanted to, to take what was good about it and try and bring it back and make it fresh and relevant for a new generation. One of the things that drives me crazy is when I read the bad reviews and they're like, yeah, like, you know, there's this and there's that. But like at the end of the day, like if they introduce a, a you know, a cadre of teenagers who are just cannon fodder for Michael Myers. And I'm like, well, I, of course, it's a Halloween movie. Like, of course, there's there's five friends and and four of them are going to die. Like, right. You like, know, if, oh, oh, let's make the Halloween movie where nobody dies. That's going to be brilliant, man. Exactly. Like, yeah, it's like you're going to show up to a Jaws movie and be like, oh, God, there's a shark. Again, like, all they have is a shark. Like, I want to see Jaws where there's no shark. I mean, no shark. <laughs> Jaws is a, is a metaphorical shark. So, I, so that part of it, I'm like, when I look at, again, her, her sort of nerdy friend who winds up, like, impaled on the spike, I the, the, the scene with her, her uh, best friend and the, the kid that she's – Julian, the kid that she's babysitting, yeah. I, I actually found that whole scene really wonderful. And the humor that they used to sell it when he's like, Dave, you should go up there. No, 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 no. Don't you go. No, no. Dave goes. And then – you know what I mean? Like yeah. – those things, those those bits. Well, we should talk about that character, uh, the little black kid that she's yep. uh, uh, babysitting. Yeah, he's great. Obviously, yeah. I love I love that part of the movie. I do. Um, I think it works really well. I like their relationship. I like the way they sort of play how Michael insinuates himself into their their reality, you know, just yeah. kind of subtly and slowly. I think that's really cool. Well, there's an honesty to their relationship. Uh, when they're, when they're sort of talking on the couch and he's like, I know, I know you're talking about getting high. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's an honesty to the relationship that makes it matter. Um, and so it works, again, it's in the context of it. If you made a tiny movie about, the babysitter and the kid and, and that conversation that ends with the babysitter get, getting murdered or whatever, 
it would be a really terrific little short film. But when you put it in this larger context, it just doesn't, it almost doesn't work. It doesn't feel like it fits into the rest of the, the movie that they've made. Well, there's also just dumb choices within it. I mean, like the girl, the the babysitter literally just trips on the floor. Yeah. And then works. becomes quadriplegic. And she's doing the crawling thing yeah. when, you know, Michael hasn't even really done any serious damage to her. And it's just like, it's so eye rolling. It's so well, eye rolling. You know, the one, this is actually the one that really hurt me. And it's exactly what I'm talking about where I'm, when I say they, they made a list of all the things that worked in Halloween, but not why they worked. So they put the, the when the character, once the, the, the best friend, is it Vicky? Yeah. Michael Myers covers her up and puts glasses on her. Am I correct in that? Well, uh, he, he, replic- he replicates the ghost he replicates thing from the Bob thing from in the, the first movie, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But everything we talked about when we talked about the first movie on this podcast, what we talked about was how everything in that movie was Michael Myers getting closer and closer and closer to these girls that it was again, we, you know, uh, uh, Carpenter would reject this sort of psychosexual analysis of Michael Myers, but it didn't hold up when you looked at the movie because everything in the movie was about Michael Myers punishing the girls who were sexually active, but trying to get as close to them as he could uh, without, I'm sorry, without being acknowledged as being the creepy weirdo that he is. And that that scene when Michael Myers finally approaches Linda uh, is the height of his attempt to be close to, to interact with, to be normal and all these kinds of things. And that he can only do it when he's covered up. I found it kind of silly, um, but I totally acknowledge the thought process behind it and the reaction that you and Mike had to it, which was that this was the closest that he gets to actually interacting with them as opposed to lurking outside and then lurking inside and then being closer and closer. And this is the closest that he gets to them. This movie totally throws out all of that psychological analysis. They don't again, they don't question why it works that Michael Myers is pretending to be Bob in that scene. They throw all that out the window, and instead all they acknowledge is the sheet. Like, the sheet is what makes that scene work, and that's dumb. Like, that's lazy. Like, that's not what made the scene work. Uh, and so if you were going to talk about it, if you were if you were going to incorporate Michael into the scene, there's a way to make it work, but it just it just requires a different structure. And even if you wanted to incorporate that imagery, there's a way to make it work, but you have to acknowledge what that imagery was about. You have to acknowledge why was Michael wearing the sheet, not just that it was scary because he was wearing a sheet. Um, I don't know. Exactly. Yeah, it, it, that that. Again, I, I hate to say laziness, but that's I don't know how else to put it. That laziness drives me crazy. Well, with, with a movie that you don't even fully understand or that you're just experiencing as entertainment, visceral, moment-to-moment thrills, suspense, tension, cheap thrills, you know, boobs and blood, whatever you define that way, um, you still hope with a great film that there's something under the surface. 
There's yep. a, a scheme. There's a plan. There's a story. There are ideas. And if you, the more you look at the film, the more that hidden structure, that hidden message uh, becomes clear to you. I yeah. don't believe, and again, I'm, we're saying this on microphones, maybe I'll be wrong, and when we revisit this and we go scene by scene at some point, I will change my mind. I don't think so. I am saying I don't think that there actually is that deeper vision to this movie that ties it all together where they're trying to say something and it's not immediately apparent beneath the guise of moment to moment thrills and set pieces and, and so on. But like there's a impetus that kind of ties it all together where we're exploring something. We're trying to say something. I honestly, my read of this film, having seen it twice is that it's sort of Again, I don't want to keep using the word, but it's this dopey aping of tropes and cliches and aspects of these movies. And there's just enough talent with the actors and the director and the cinematography and the editing and the sound design and all of those wonderfully professional people in various creative departments that... They, they sell it, but there's no there there. There just isn't a cohesive, a real take on this. And that's kind of why you get this groping for Me Too or, you know, some other, you know, thematic resonance to this film. Because they're, they're just retconning that as well. And it, it really kind of partially comes down to... On some level, I was afraid that this movie would have a some sequence where a bunch of women are beating on Michael Myers. And on some level, it's for women to like enjoy some cathartic thrill that Michael represents your Harvey Weinstein. And we're just kicking his ass. And rightly or wrongly, um, the movie does not go there. But I will say that, because at least that would have been a cohesive endpoint for something that would directly be tapping into some kind of uh, cathartic slash vindictive impulse that yeah. needs to come out. But I don't even think that impulse comes out in this film. However, one of my favorite things about the movie seeing it the second time and I did get a little bit of a thrill at the back of my neck and my spine at this moment. And maybe, maybe that's all they needed to do and I'll decide that later. But when Michael is looking up through the bars at them, when he realized that he's been trapped in this basement and they're all looking at him and the flames are coming in around him like, I think on some level that's the classier way to do sort of the primal just beating women beating up this man for what he's done to them kind of sequence. Because I did like the kind of rat in a trap quality of that. That, you know what, Michael? Fuck you. We've got you. And there's nothing you can do about it. Like, there was a satisfaction to that. Here's the thing. I, I agree with you. I love the idea of that moment. 
The problem is, you know what? Here's where that the closest that moment comes to being properly executed is when Judy Greer pretends to right, be right. so emotionally distraught that she doesn't know what to do. She's like, Mom, I need you. Mom, please. I, I can't do this by myself. At which point Michael assumes that she is in an emotionally weak place and appears at the top of the stairs and she says, gotcha. And then she starts shooting him. That's that's a moment of true female empowerment where she really tricks and gets the best of Michael Myers just with her wits. The problem with the 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 plan as it plays out here is that it's fucking stupid. <laughs> right? Like if the, I mean again the, the, and this is what I'm talking about there's all this talk about like you said this was my cage it's not your cage like it's my something whatever like it's you can see that this is a discussion that they that that Jamie Lee Curtis and Judy Greer have been having before but there's nothing really beyond like the two lines that they have that actually suggests it's a conversation that they've been having By the way, and how dumb is that like oh I was afraid that if I told you my plan, you might let on when Michael showed up. So yeah. we couldn't effectively trap him. I mean, come on. Yeah. That, no. Really? So, and, it's, and it's really, I mean, here's the thing, right? Is it's really very simple. If, you, if that was the plan, I'm on board. I got it. I love it. I agree with you. I love that moment with them watching him trapped because they were smarter than him. Right, yeah, I love that too. They're, they need there just has to be another exit in the basement. Your plan can't be we're going to lure him into the basement and then just like somehow get past the serial killer so that we can lock him in the basement. You have another door in the basement that you go out of that that you then lock. You know what I mean? Like it's it. There's a way to make it work. It's really easy. That just involves them actually being smarter than him and not just you as the filmmakers trying to trick us as the audience. Well, I watched that pretty closely uh, last night and it was somewhat plausible how they, uh, you know, I was thinking that. I'm like, well, if they're in the basement, like, how do they get him in there and then get out themselves in order to spring this trap? And I think they did a reasonably good job of it. But as you're saying, like if you're planning this thing, it's not somehow, oh, well, he'll fall down the stairs and then we can get up the stairs and uh, we'll be out. He'll be in. Right. Exactly. There's yeah. got to be a second exit. But like, I almost <laughs> think, Vic, you're it's, you're setting up the sequel, yeah. though. Right. I mean, because that would be how they actually do explain. It's like, well, of <laughs> course, there was a way out of there because we weren't going to. Uh, trap ourselves there and so thus that is actually how Michael gets out is because there was a way out of the basement and you are you are just now telling our audience why that will be believable I I, I honestly like even if that's true I don't care like it's <laughs> not it's there, there's a there was a smart way to execute that scene and you figure out your sequel after you execute the scene intelligently um, and they didn't, they just didn't execute it intelligently. Well, I think Savannah agrees with you for sure. Savannah very much wants to be a part of this. <laughs> the movie is just smart enough to not seem dumb. 
But if you look closely at anything, like scene by scene or the overall structure and mechanism by which the plot unfolds, it holds up to zero scrutiny. And even just like, let's talk briefly about Act 3 before we wrap this up. I found Act 3 the second time, like, really dull. And, you know, there's a lot of Jamie Lee Curtis... um, creeping around looking for Michael in closets and whatnot. And by the way, like if you're worried about, or you even want to invite Michael into your home, like filling rooms with mannequins is probably not the best strategy uh, for picking out where your antagonist might be. And she had two Two separate closets that looked like the closet she was trapped in the first one, yeah. with the with the doors and the slats yeah. in them. I was like, I the first time I really liked it. The second time I was like, well, that's just fucking silly. Like, well, right, right. I mean, overall, I will say that like the first time I saw the movie, the sort of um, role reversal that the granddaughter looks out the window from her classroom when she's hearing her teacher drone on about fate and there's someone staring from the sidewalk, but instead of it being Michael, it's Lori. Okay. I get, I get a kick out of that. I I dig that. I'm not going to lie to you. And when, you know, she hits the grass and she's lying down there outside the window and Michael looks away and he looks back and she's gone and they play the sting uh, from the first movie, except now it's that she's gone. Yeah, I mean, I get a little kick out of that. I'm I'm human. Yeah. Those are, but that's what I mean. Those are the ones. Those are the scenes where it works when you when you've made the dry erase board list of yeah. the things that yeah. worked. You know what I mean? But it's it's only when you when you spend more time looking at it and really thinking about the characters and the themes and the the reasons why it worked. So, it's, again, I agree with you on both those counts. Those are both really good scenes, especially the one when Michael looks out the window and she's gone. The audience I was with kind of kind of cheered uh, when that happened. And that's, again, that was an enormously well done. And that's what I mean. This isn't a bad movie, but it's disappointing. It's the, there was a there was a potential here, uh, especially with Jamie Lee Curtis, especially with what they could have done with her character and like you said, with the the potential for Michael Myers to be, you know, Harvey Weinstein, you know, it, it, to be a chance for to 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 really feel like women were being empowered to take control over these monsters that have been abusing them for all these years, uh, whether whether in these sort of real tangible physical forms or in the psychological perspective that. In your nightmares, they are there. They're lurking around every corner. They're they're under your bed. They're they're waiting to break into your house or whatever. This was a chance to see those characters really step up and take control of themselves and take control of these narratives. And I just I just can't help but feel that David Gordon Green and and Danny McBride were not the people to tell that story. What does Karen Kusama do with this story? What does Catherine Bigelow do with this story? Like, there's a lot of really interesting versions of this movie, and this one is not boring, but it's also not interesting. Exactly. Like, it's a a solidly mediocre film, but at the same time, I don't understand 
I heard, I'm sorry, I heard somebody describe a film as aggressively mediocre. It's <laughs> not quite how I describe it, it's close. This is almost aggressively mediocre. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a movie where, like, if we went scene by scene, like, I feel like I would just rip it to fucking pieces. Yeah. But yet, at the same time, it's not objectively bad. Like, that's just the weird thing about it. And there are some really cool, effective things. And I like the weird, like, little subplot of, like, sub-subplot of, like, the couple where the guy gets the tattoo on his arm of this night and, you know, the yeah. ghoulish irony is that it's just the day that he and she died. Yeah. Um, there's some, like, no. there's lots of little things to like along those, the way. Again, those scenes are good. The scenes with the podcasters are good. Like, there's a, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a handful of scenes that, that actually do work. But... And even those two podcasters, like, you could say... I mean, is this like a crass satire of podcasters and we're supposed to hate those people? All of, you know, Friday the 13th movies where, you know, everyone, every character is somehow heinous and you want to see them murdered. This movie doesn't even go there. Like they're, yeah. they're sort of neutrally portrayed with a few yeah. douchey moments, uh, but nothing like over the top. They're not. They're not obviously cannon fodder, right? Which is kind of all I ask at this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the movie does a lot of things right. It does, or, or you know, just in kind of a non-formulaic, cliche way. But but there's so many things in this film that just feel ordinary and not well thought out and disappointing. That that you just it does not feel like a movie that we're going to be higher on in the future. It doesn't feel like a film that has mysteries to unravel and there are subtleties and there are things that will be timeless. It, it just, it feels like a, a movie that honestly we're probably going to be more negative about in the future as opposed to more positive about and that's a weird place to be with a, a film that's so successful and with, you know, with good, good performances. And, you know, I just, I do want to quickly highlight that I think that the, the nerdy guys like internal monologue while he's being haunted by Michael with the, um, with those lights that, you know, come on and off the motion, motion sensor, sensor lights, which was, a, which, was a, which was a nicely, another nicely done scene with a very low concept idea. Yes. Yes. Like, I, I think that that, like in those moments you're thinking this is a cut above the dialogue that you see in a Halloween movie. And this is very nicely staged and nicely timed and it's legitimately disturbing. Uh, so, you know, there are, there are things that I, I feel like we will look back on favorably historically, but yeah, the big points about character arc and motivation and logic and, and just screenwriting, I don't, I don't think that this movie is going to age well. I just don't. I agree. I will say, and, and this may well serve as a, as a good final thought that with all of that said, I, there is a reason that 
this is so hugely successful and that Michael Myers continues to be more so than Jason Voorhees, more more so than uh, uh, Freddy Krueger, more so than uh, Leatherface. Michael Myers, I think, is going to continue to sort of haunt our nightmares a little bit. That that you and I are looking at this and going, okay, this doesn't work. But boy, how do you even look at this and see if you just done this? If you just done this, if you just done this, there's a there's a there's a, an epic horror film. There's there's something that really does enter the collective consciousness. There's something that does you know, at least re- reconnect with the thing about Michael Myers that that entered our collective consciousness in a way that I'm not sure it's possible to do with Jason or Freddy or Leatherface or or Pinhead or whatever else. Um, there is something iconic there's something visceral there's something about michael myers that's that we're gonna i feel like we're gonna keep coming back to because there's there's still gonna be a chance to get it right we're gonna do a sequel to this like we're gonna keep coming back to this because we're gonna get it right and i just want to say because i've said this at the beginning of this podcast series Michael Myers is the only one of these movie monsters, really. Zombies is the other one, but they're very similar in the fact that I have nightmares about them where I'm stuck somewhere and this malignant force, and again, 50% of the time it's zombies, 50% of the time it's Michael Myers is coming for me, and I haven't blocked off this window, I haven't locked this door, or whatever. I go, it's open, and then I'm running, and like they're very mundane uh, dreams by some nightmare standards, but I had a nightmare about Michael Myers. I saw this on a Friday on Saturday night. I had a nightmare where I was being chased by Michael Myers. Um, that's a very, to this again, you know, 1978, you're talking 40 years later, you're talking at least, uh, you know, 25, 20 years, uh, since I saw the, the first Halloween, um, Boy, how did this guy still in my nightmares? He is still in my subconscious. And if I'm disappointed, it's because the chance for him to really stab his way back in there is is still there. It's still waiting for somebody to grab a hold of it. I thought maybe they had done it this time, but they haven't. I mean, that's, that's very powerful because this is the granddaddy of them all. I mean, like, there would be no Jason, there would be no Freddy without Michael Myers. I mean, the blueprint was written with Halloween. And yeah, I mean, partisans would argue that Black Christmas really wrote the script, but no, it's, it's a, that's a more traditional thriller with some transgressive elements. Halloween really understands how to bring it home to your neighborhood, to your house, to your kitchen. Like Again, it, it does tie into Jaws in some way, which is just like, how do you make people worry about where they want to go? Like, where they live, where they, you know, where they vacation. You know, just like it ties it to reality in a way that it's very powerful. But Halloween, there's something about him that varies, that, that differs because... Michael has the mystery of Freddy and the sort of insidiousness of Freddy, and he has the implacable unstoppability of Jason, but he has 
neither the weaknesses of Freddy, which are being too jokey and too gimmicky and too, you know, for lack of a better term, unrealistic or fantastical. And he does he lacks the sort of one-dimensional monotonous quality that Jason has. Like he he splits the difference perfectly. And I think that might be why in this film definitively puts him ahead. Uh, he he wins. Like he's the sort of he's the gold standard of the slasher film. And I would not have really understood that. He was not my personal favorite. I think we've talked about in the past, Jason's my personal favorite. And in some way I probably would have said Freddy was second and not and not Michael Myers. But I get it with like I'm starting to really understand and this movie doesn't hurt that, so I guess that's a compliment to it. But I understand that Michael really is the sort of man for all seasons because he he's whatever you want to believe because he doesn't fucking talk and yet you know that the still waters run deep. He just doesn't have the sort of simplicity psychological simplicity of Jason. This this is really the the true slasher archetype and the, the, the movie that we've just seen does not piss on that grave. It may not be great, it doesn't advance the story, it doesn't push it in exciting and provocative new directions. I don't think 20 years from now people are going to see that and say, oh yeah, that clearly came from the Me Too movement. I just, I don't see it doing anything special in that regard. But I do think that it it reminds us that there's something here. And it, it, it only reminds us of that power. So that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I agree. Okay. Until next time. Hope you enjoyed our little pop-up episode. Good times. Glad to be back. I missed this. Yeah, me too, man. Feels really good okay. to be back. Here, here. Adios! Alright, I... Uh...